forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writer's Panel. Thank you for listening, and thanks to all of you who have subscribed to my newsletter, Rewriting. Um, we had our first Q&A recently. Well, as of you are hearing this, we had our first and second Q&A recently. Um, the first with C. Robert Cargill, who is the writer of uh, Sinister, Doctor Strange, The Black Phone. Uh, he has a new new movie coming up with his frequent collaborator, Scott Derrickson, uh, called The Gorge. We talk about that. It was such a cool experience. These Q&As uh, are monthly. They're for paid subscribers only. And uh, that's the only way you get to participate. It's the only way you even get to listen to them later. For this first one, um, we had four paid subscribers show up. Um, I expected a lot more because there are more uh, paid subscribers on the newsletter. But we had four show up and it was awesome. It was so much fun. It was, you know, these, these folks got to ask their questions that they are interested in of Cargill. Um, and it was like hanging out at a bar with a writer who's had this wealth of experience uh, and loves to share his knowledge. Um, so that was really cool. So what I'm going to bring you today um, is some selections from that. Uh, I wanted to be able to share with you some of the the great stuff that Cargill um, had to say in this first exclusive Q&A. Um, I just want to share a couple pieces before today's episode. And um, if you want to listen to the whole thing, go over to benblacker.substack.com and become a paid subscriber. We've already had our second Q&A with Ryan Condal, who is the co-creator and co-showrunner of House of the Dragons. And we've got our December one right around the corner, and you don't want to miss it. The guests have been so great um, about giving their time and sharing their knowledge. Um, and and it really is like, it's, it's just a fun vibe on these things where we're getting to have a conversation with these great writers. Okay, so um, for this first piece um, of the Cargo Q&A that I wanted to share, um, Ali, who is one of our subscribers, had asked about why he lives in Austin and why not in Los Angeles. And Cargill's talked about this a bit elsewhere, but he had a great answer for that. And then we started talking about uh, networking and building a community and finding a community wherever you are. And Ali was coming to us from um, Northern California. And so, like, we talked about how there is, you know, there are movie lovers there. There are people that you can network with um, in your own hometown. So here's Cargill on networking. One of the things I try to t uh, impart in people is when you're making connections, um, when you're networking, you're, it's not going to be the big A-list screenwriter or filmmaker that's going to make your career. Uh, 99 times out of 100, that's not what's going to happen. It's going to be you're going to be working for those people and you're going to really connect with the other assistant that you're working for at your company. And then you're going to find out that you guys vibe and it's like, well, let's make something. I mean, that's how Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead got together. They both came out separately to, you know, find their fortunes making movies. 
and ended up becoming best friends working at the same uh, 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 management company and then said, well, what if we just scraped together some money and went and made a movie on the weekend with some friends? Do you know people? Do you know people? And that's how their partnership happened and Rustic Films happened. And, and you know, those guys are constantly making films now. They shot two different uh, Marvel TV series now. And their big break was not someone big recognizing yeah. them, but somebody who would be big with them recognizing them. And that's that's the key to this kind of networking is you're going to find those people, those like minded people that help you ascend with them. Another one of the subscribers, uh, all everyone had great questions. Uh, Franny, who came in from right here uh, in Pasadena, uh, right, right next door to me, um, had a great question about rewriting. Basically, she she asked, how do you balance polishing with what you're working on, polishing what you're working on without overthinking it? And Cargill, of course, had a terrific uh, answer about this craft for this craft question. Here's that now. Well, I mean, that's that is an acquired skill. Um, that is something that you will really learn over time. It is about there's there's a it's the secret is to allow yourself to become not precious, but not jaded. Uh, and it is a hard thread to need a hard needle to thread um, in this industry. And you see a lot of old, uh, old school writers get real jaded and just don't care. And they're like, look, uh, here's the best version of that. You're going to change it. Fuck it. Whatever. Um, you've got to keep that passion to protect the good writing, but also not be precious enough about your writing that you can't, you can't noodle around with it. Um, what I recommend early for younger writers, um, you know, writers in their first few years uh, of the struggle is to put it in a drawer, uh, especially for a month, you know, take this thing you've written, put it in a drawer for a month and write something else. And the reason for that is that you start once you get that distance, you know, our brains do this funny thing where it starts editing out, you know, uncomfortable parts of uh, uh, of things that we go through you know uh the, the the biggest example of this is is pregnancy where pregnancy you know when a woman gives birth it is a terrible painful awful magical experience um and then her brain edits out hours and hours of the bad stuff and goes you know maybe i want to do that again um you know it is it is kind of a a, a species self-defense mechanism uh we do that with writing um, you know, you will agonize over a paragraph for an hour trying to get it right and trying to get the writing right and trying to do this and trying to and get it. And then finally you get it. And it's like, oh, I got it. It works. It's great. And then you go back and in, in editing, you go, oh, this page needs to go. And then your brain instantly goes, but I spent an hour on this paragraph alone. Like that was a whole hour. And like, oh, I don't want to lose it. I mean, that was a lot of work. But as a writer, you got to be like, it doesn't matter how much work it was. It doesn't work. Go. It's got to go. Hit the hit the road. Um, I, I in a in a uh, medium step, you know, a, a, a halfway step. What I did is I started creating files called cuts and edits where I, anything I loved that I had to go, I would cut and throw in a file. And then invariably, I discovered I never went back to that file. There's one time in my entire career I went back to that file and that was working on a novel. Um, and, and I found some stuff embedded in that, that I had cut that I was like, Ooh, I could slip that back in. Cause my editor's asking for this. And, and, um, uh, but that was the only time you end up, and then you end up getting like me where, you know, you do your writing in a day, you put it down, you go back the next day and you're like, this sucks. It was gone. 
and you have no problem evaporating a bunch of work because it's going to save you a lot of time and heartache later to just yeah. get rid of it now. And and the the key is to just learn how to identify what works and what doesn't work. Don't be afraid to cut your own stuff and and go that wasn't good enough. You know, um, uh, one of the things I like to stress about this is that the the greatest thing about being a writer is that no one gets to see our work until we're ready. Um, like, it's not like a singer. It's not like a musician. It's not like an athlete. You are on the spot. And if you fuck up, you fuck up in front of everybody. Uh, if, if we fuck up, it's because we let something loose before it was ready. Hmm. Uh, because we really get to go over it and go over it and go over it. And then the entire audience, no matter what it is, finished product assumes that was your first draft. Like, you know, nobody, nobody thinks about yeah. all the work that goes into that. Everybody thinks you just sat down at the keyboard and the novel came out of your fingers and, and it's the novel and it's great. And we love it. And how did you do that? I marvel at how you did that. And it's like, because you don't look at the hours and hours that I wrote and rewrote and the 10,000 words I cut out of that novel, you know, painstakingly from chapter to chapter, you know, to make it just flow like that. Like you don't see that. Uh, and so embrace that as a, as a strength of this career and don't be afraid to work and rework and polish until you think it's ready. Um, and you, the, the trust, the taste that you have developed over the years, watching stuff and criticizing stuff and use that inner critic to watch and read your stuff and go, oh, this isn't good enough. This is not it. it. How do I? And then figuring out how to fix it. Well, what do I do? I mean, I'll just throw it out. Uh, so the editing process is very much one of trusting your own taste and trusting that you have enough time uh, to get it right. Uh, and don't be afraid of that. So once you've learned how to divorce yourself from that work, because uh, that's the first step, uh, once you get past that, then you can really get into, you know, the true pro level being willing to, you know, send your pages off to your, your co-writer. And then the next day it comes back and they cut five pages of your work and not be bothered by it and be like, Oh, this is good. I like this. Yeah, this works. Um, you know, once you realize that sometimes failing and getting it wrong is every bit as important as getting it right. Um, you can start editing with confidence. We spent a lot of time talking about Marvel because uh, there was a lot to talk about. It was really, it was really fun and it was really interesting. And it's rare that you get, get that kind of inside baseball conversation with someone who's been in the trenches on this like huge thing. Um, we talked a lot about how Kevin Feige, as the person overseeing Marvel's TV and film, has his hand in everything. And and I've never heard anyone say anything negative about that. His his contributions are always additive and he always feels that the best idea wins. And and that was Cargill's experience as well, which is not to say that you don't argue with the boss. Um, and so we asked about, you know, a time when he had to push back at Marvel and on Doctor Strange and what the conversation with Kevin was like. Um, and so here's here's part of that that answer from Cargill. In terms of arguing with Kevin, you know, we had a, a, a it always frustrated his assistants because he was on a rigid schedule and he had no qualms about spending half an hour with me in a room arguing over which characters had unstable molecules in their costumes. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember that particular conversation because I was like, uh, he's like, oh, no, only the Fantastic Four. I'm like, oh, no, Kitty Pride, uh, the you know, number of the X-Men. They have unstable molecules that they got from Reed Richards. And, and, uh, and it's like, oh, and he's like, 
oh shit yeah oh that's how she phases oh yeah no all right cargo you win this one um do you yeah, when you're not- when you're in there having that kind of like 90 minute conversation are you like i can't believe i get to have this conversation also i can't believe we're having this conversation it what it what it is is it's you 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 go full nerd and he's a yeah. full nerd and so you just pull nerd out and every few minutes you realize wait this is a real conversation i'm having like this is happening yeah. like i'm in i'm in the avengers uh conference room in so you know funny. the marvel compound uh, <laughs> arguing unstable molecules with kevin fight this is pretty fucking rad uh you know you have a few i've had a few of those moments in my life i remember being in a dark corner of the alamo draft house in 2001 having a discussion on philosophy in the matrix with quentin tarantino and uh david carradine and um you just you have those moments where you just go what am i doing i'm a 26 year old video store clerk why am i having this deep conversation about philosophy in the matrix with quentin tarantino and david carradine uh, i don't understand this but fuck it i'm going with it um because you just you just dive in and go fuck it i'm here let's go um and uh uh so yeah you definitely have those moments of self-awareness but then you go back and go wait wait did he just no 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 in in x-men 182 um you know, and you have those. Uh, and so, and, and he really knows his stuff. So when you do actually win one of those, those things, I remember we, I brought up a character thing and uh, uh, about, you know, Dr. Strange and, and uh, Kevin looked at me and said, is that from the comic? And I was like, yeah, it happened in this issue and dropped the issue number. And he goes, oh, sure. We got to do that. That's great. Oh, wow. And he didn't realize that that had been a thing in the comic. Um, and so when you drop those nuggets that, you know, your stuff, you get included in a special level of <laughs> Kevin appreciates you. That, uh, is pretty great. There was a moment where there was a whole big behind the scenes thing and I won't go into it. I know it's, some of it's been written about, but there was a whole point where, um, you know, uh, there was a big choice between, do we go with Kevin Feige or do we go with the Marvel creative committee? And what was said behind the scenes is you're asking me if I go with LeBron James or the team that's not LeBron James, I go with LeBron (laughs) James. Um, You know, the reason he is the LeBron James of producing movies is because he is the guy that lets the best idea win because he doesn't have to have his, his stamp of approval on a movie is that it's good. Um, You know, there are very few movies that people would argue are bad Marvel movies. Um, you know, there's Marvel movies you don't like Marvel movies that are weaker than the others. You know, we all have our least favorites, you know, which is going to happen after two dozen movies, uh, where something's got to be at the bottom of the pile. Um, but, uh, but I don't think Marvel's ever made a terrible movie. Um, and it, you know, I've seen a number of terrible movies in my life and I don't know a single, I don't know a single major IP that doesn't have a terrible movie to it. Um, you know, one of the things I like to joke about is, uh, you know, fast and furious where it's like fast and furious is exactly like star Wars. There are four good ones, but no one can agree which four those are. Um, and that is, and, and, uh, but Marvel doesn't have that Marvel doesn't have, Oh, there's only four good ones. It's like, there's a lot of really good ones in there. There's a lot of great films. It mixed in with a lot of good films with a couple of, "Ah, I wish they were better. Um, right. And that's, and that's Feige and that's his, the best idea wins. And that's why the content is as good as it is there because he's worked with some of the best minds in Hollywood and let them win. Um, yeah. And that's where you get so many films that feel different from one another. Uh, yeah. You know, you really, especially in that, what I consider to be the golden age, the, that era that I was fortunate enough to be a part of where you guardians of the galaxy, Dr. Strange and black Panther do not, are three very different films that feel like they should not be part of the same IP. And they are, yeah. um, 
you know, one of them is Ghostbusters. One of them, you know, is a weird beer, $200 million drug film. And one is this big uh, <laughs> epic. And uh, I mean, which you, is I'll, I'll figure <laughs> we may have played at drive-ins in Canada longer <laughs> than anywhere else uh, for a reason. <laughs> All right. So that was just some selections from our conversation with Cargill um, that was exclusive to paid subscribers at benblacker.substack.com. I hope you'll join us for upcoming Q&As. They've been really fun so far. And, um, you know, I, I'd love to have a few more people there, get that com- round table conversation going. Though that said, with only a few people, we went for 90 minutes. Uh, it was really a terrific chat. Uh, and I'm so grateful to Cargill for being a part of it. I'm grateful to Ryan Condal for being our second Q&A guest. And head on over right now to benblacker.substack.com to find out who December's guest will be and how you can join that conversation. As ever, thanks for supporting. Thanks for listening. All right, on to today's episode where we were plagued by problems. Um, we had one one person did not show up for the recording, um, and I was still glad to talk with Erica and um, Eileen, but uh, unfortunately, Eileen was just battered with audio problems, video problems, and then her cat wouldn't stop uh, crying, and then there were people at the door every five minutes. It was just bananas. So, our intrepid engineer and producer, Jordan Katz, has done an incredible job of piecing together what's left of this interview. And there's great stuff in here. This is a good episode. And I feel so sorry for Erica and Yulin. Um, But these things happen, uh, and we'll have them both back at some point, for sure. Um, but there's good stuff here, and uh, we'll we'll sort of... It's a truncated episode. So we'll take it from here. Thanks to Jordan for his hard work. Thanks to Erica and Yulin for being there. Give it a listen. Thank you both for being here. Um, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphone so the listener knows what your voice sounds like. Tell us uh, who you are and where they may have seen your name on their TV screen uh, in the past. And Erica, let's start with you, please. Cool. Uh, My name is Erica Sala. I am currently uh, the showrunner of One of Us is Lying, which is a teen murder mystery on Peacock. And before that, I... Uh, was a writer in a bunch of great rooms, um, everything from Channel Zero to quite a few CBS procedurals. Um, and uh, most recently, before One of Us is Lying, was Evil um, for what is now Paramount Plus, uh, which was a thrill oh, to work interesting. on. Cool. Great. Uh, and Yulene? Uh, hi, I am Yulene Kwong. I'm a screenwriter and director. Um, so currently I'm kind of a features bitch. Um, I'm adapting this book called People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry uh, for 3000 Pictures and Temple Hill. Um, and then before that, I had a TV show, the shortest lived TV show called I Ship It that I created and show ran. It was on the CW summer schedule in 2019 and premiered to the second lowest ratings that the CW ever had i do believe so we were promptly canceled but i always like to say it was a victory we got that thing on in the air at all um oh and then God. i've also done some episodic directing work so i i did an episode of doll face uh recently 
like I said, I have a few things I want to sort of jump off with. Um, and what I'm interested in right now is pitching. Um, and I'd love to hear about, um, well, let's start with One of Us is Lying. Um, Erica, was this a show that came to you? Did you pitch on this? How did how did it get started? And like, what did that the the process of getting it to at least people interested look like? Um, yeah, I pitched on it. It's so it's based on a novel um, by Karen McManus and UCP and at a production company, Five More Minutes had the rights to it and they were kind of doing the bake-off thing. They, you know, they had, they sent it out to a few writers. Um, I believe, you know, I, gosh, I pitched on it. Like, I think now it must've been almost four years ago, like three or four years ago. So the producers Mm -hmm. brought it to me. I pitched them. They brought me and one or two other writers to the studio and the network and, uh, I won out, um, but it was, you know, when I got sent the book, I was a story editor, maybe an executive story editor. And I remember reading it and loving the book and just being like, I know how to write this pilot. Um, so the pitch process felt sort of, I felt really confident. Cause I was like, I can see the pilot. And I was so sort of new and thought it was impossible that it would turn out to be a show that was on TV, right? Like I was like, cool, I'm going to get paid to write a pilot. And then it was like, oh, I'm going to get paid to shoot a pilot. And then I was like, oh, holy shit, we're making this show. You know, it was uh, uh, kind of every step was like, oh, wow, we're still going. Um, But I think in a weird way that gave me confidence because I was like, I know how to do this step. And then I know how to do this step. Um, But I never saw the the full picture when, when they sent me the book. I think like so often when we are invited to pitch on something, we do have that experience of like reading the book or whatever it is and like knowing what this pilot is, right? Like yeah. I, I know that I can make this pilot. I know I can make this feature. I know what it sounds like. I know what it feels like. Um, but translating that to the pitch itself is a whole other thing. So do you remember what you pitched yeah, to the executives? Yeah. I do. And I remember, you know, I, the big thing, I think story wise, the book has such a like great juicy mystery backbone. So that was, that was there for me, you know? And I, so my pitch was really character based, really like, how do I do more with these characters? How do I push them farther? You know, then not a knock on the book, but just of course, when you're opening up the world, when you're telling a, I think TV is demands a bigger story with more twists and turns and going deeper into those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really focused on what I would add. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think what probably got me the job was I had a really personal reaction to it. I, I happened when I was in high school, um, I went to a really small high school and a, a, there were a couple of murders um, while I was in high school. And so I had this really sort of emotional uh, connection to this work being like, you know, a murder mystery is great, but what I'm interested in is like, what happens to the kids who live through this? You know, like mm-hmm. what happens to your friendships? What happens to the way you see the world? Um, when a classmate or a friend or a peer is killed and it really does shift everything. So I kind of came at it from this very personal angle. Um, 
And if I had to guess, oh, I would uh, I would guess that's what that's what got me the job. Um, and Yulene, the same question. I mean, you've done a bunch of adaptations recently. Um, let's talk about like getting those off the ground and and or did you pitch on them? So the first time around, when I wanted to adapt this book, um, most of the people I knew worked in the web series space, um, and so I took it to those people, and they were like, you know. YA is not doing so hot. Maybe we can pivot it and age them up and do all these things. And I'm, you know, young and dumb and 26 probably at this point. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, all these things. I pitch it to the author. She rightly says, no, thank you. Um, and then years go by, you know. Um, and then I think I have another meeting with my reps where they're like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, still this book. <laughs> um, and they said, uh, well, the, the author is now actually at UTA, which is where I was at. Um, maybe we can set a meeting. So that time around, I came back to her. I was like, I, I want to do this for real. I want to do this as a feature. Um, and then I remember her saying yes. And then taking that to um, the agency and they, they said something, they called me and said something like, um, you know, there, we, we checked the market and there doesn't really seem to be a market for this uh, story. So hopefully you're excited to write it on spec, um, <laughs> which I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm excited to write it on spec because at this point in time, I hadn't sold like fucking anything really. Um, and so I, I adapted it on spec. Um, I think in that time I sold a feature pitch um, and uh, for New Line, that was about like a woman running her childhood uh, family Chinese restaurant. And then I sold another pilot that also didn't get made. <laughs> um, and then uh, finally, when I was done writing this feature, I had kind of had a couple more credits and I think more people knew who I was. So when they went out with it, um, we got like, uh, more offers and it was very exciting. And then that ended up landing at Netflix. Um, and then uh, from there, what happened? Uh, worked on that for a while. And then um, I got some people we meet on vacation for my consideration to adapt. And I was very aware of Emily Henry as just like a force to be reckoned with. Like she's um, an incredible writer. And I, th I just think she does such wonderful work in terms of telling grounded stories in romance and I've always gravitated towards kissing stories. Um, and so I remember getting that one and being like, this is, this is the one <laughs> I, I need this. Um, and uh, I, I think mostly I pitched them this vision of, I, I have this feeling where rom-coms as Hollywood sees them um, are kind of like, stuck in this idea of what rom-coms were in the nineties, where mm. it's kind of either you have escapism and it's like funny, haha or everything else is like uh, kind of like rolling around in the shit. I'm not explaining this well. My brain is still on the fact that I had to move. Um, basically, I think we look at media as a, a kind of a binary in Hollywood where it's either escapism on one side or you have kind of like the like darker fare on the other side. Sure. So it's either escapism, fluffy rom-coms, or it's like parasite rolling around in the shit grapple with your humanity. And I think that what books do really well is that they, they're they able to show us the sliding scale of the happily ever after where you can roll around in the shit for a while and still end like hopefully and happily. 
um, in a way that I haven't really seen movies do so much. So I think what I kind of sold them on on my pitch was I, I want to give us a rom-com that ends hopefully, but first we we kind of go through some emotional realism there and kind mm-hmm. of put them through it. That's really interesting. And and again, like it, it sets you apart. It makes your version specific, right? Uh, and either they're going to get on board with it or they're not. Yeah. Um, I think that's an interesting question too about like, what are we doing to get our stuff on the air? What are we doing to break the mold, um, but also like conform to the mold? Um, and and Erica, let's talk about this. Like you you mentioned working on Evil, which I think is such a great show and presents as a procedural, but really is not. I mean, it's such a weird show. <laughs> Are there conversations, were there conversations in the room about like what you can get away with, what, what, you know, we can get away with on Paramount, what we can get away with as storytellers? You know, I think, I think uh, Robert and Michelle King have earned, uh, earned the right to not really have to have those conversations, you know, and I think especially on. Hmm. Paramount. Um, they knew they had more, more room to, Mm -hmm. to play. Um, and you know, I mean, I think the good wife and the good fight do the same thing, right. They present themselves as a procedural Mm -hmm. and they are so much like gutsier and stranger. And I think evil was like, it's, it's that same, it's the same thing in a different genre. Um, so honestly in that room, Mm -hmm. it, it just felt like, pitch and go big and you know Robert and Michelle have such a clear vision of what they want that you know they're they're incredibly I think I think because there's such a clear vision it lets people in the room really like pitch big and like go into the weird things that they love and are obsessed with um and then it finds its way into being like still in the uh in the world of the show if that makes sense Mm mm-hmm that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I just think about like, even, even if we're not worried about sort of pleasing the people who are paying us, the the networks and studios and stuff. Like I watched a movie last night, which was, I think really good, but it also took a lot of formal risks. Um, and not all of them worked. Um, but it's still fascinating to watch and it still feels like this filmmaker's voice. And I wonder about like, Never mind the network consideration, but for ourselves, like how much story do I need to be a story? How much do I need this thing to be recognizable as a romantic comedy or as a horror show or as a detective show, whatever it is, and still, you know, still be a purely, you know, thing from my brain, you know? Like, are these questions, these sort of storytelling questions, things you explore on the new show, on One of Us is Lying? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, we are we are very much like a, mur- like, soapy murder mystery, super fun teen show. And, you know, and like, that is, I love those shows. That is the show that we are, we're making. But I do think... I mean, I hope what sets us apart is that, like, I think we have 
really interesting, complex, real feeling characters. Like I think are um, kind of in the writer's room, you know, my rule of thumb is we can put these kids in larger than life circumstances as long as they're emotionally grounded, right? Like as long as the characters are feel real and are are responding to the circumstances they're in in ways that like real humans do um then i think we get to have fun and let them do crazy ridiculous things and you know i think we really in season two we are off on our own you know there's no book anymore we're just we're creating our it's the characters from the book but we're off on our own storytelling wise which has been such a thrill and we have two episodes, I think, that really break the mold of what you expect from a teen murder mystery. Um, and it's it's an eight-episode series. Episode five, we kind of take the pressure off of them. And we just have this episode where we called it like Last Night on Earth. And we just show these characters that you have known up until now in like eight episodes of the first season and four episodes of the second season as like constantly under stress, constantly like oh God, who's trying to kill us? Or are we going to get away with this thing? And, you know, like solving mystery. And we were like, fuck all that. Like, what do these kids look like when they're teenagers having fun? And it was a, it was a hard one. Like the pitch to the, to the studio network on that was kind of like, you have to, you have to trust us and we know we have to earn it. Right. And we actually originally wanted it to be episode four of the season. Um, and they rightly were like, we need uh, we need one more one more episode here. Like we need a little more mystery, a little more tension to earn this, um, you know, earn this like blowing off steam episode. Uh, and it's it's one of my favorite episodes. It's so much fun. And then the next episode, we break the mold again and have like the whole episode is the from the perspective of kind of like the mean girl who's an outside character, and. And I think we're always kind of like looking for ways to be like, how do we get to be this teen murder mystery, but also break the mold and also try new things and have fun with our storytelling. And, you know, I think for me, one of the things I've been learning as a showrunner and have learned, you know, the rooms I've been in, I think the best showrunners I've had, like really trust their rooms and let people pitch big and, you know, like don't don't shut those ideas down. Um, and, you know, so I, I think it's been, it's been something I'm, I'm proud of in the room, just being like, when someone pitches something, that's like, that's not what we usually do in this show being like, but yeah, what if we did um, has been, I think made some of the best episodes. What I want to ask about is, you know, you both sort of come up in different ways. You know, um, Yulene, your your career has been much more like my own, where, it, you know, you haven't been staffed on a show necessarily. You've been making your own stuff. Um, and Erica, you it seems like you've come up through the system in many ways, which is no, no easier. <laughs> um, so I want to ask about, like, a couple of things. One is... Tell me about the hustle. Tell me about what it looks like when you're looking for that next job, when you're trying to sell something, you're trying to make something. Tell me about your experiences and challenges and successes in that area. And what does success look like? 
you know, um, when you are not a mega showrunner, which you both, you know, are about to be, but you're not yet. What are you saying, Ben? <laughs> We're Eric and <laughs> Like, I don't know that those people exist anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I started yeah. this podcast, there was a list of names of people who had shows on the air who you could go to and be like, this is our wish list. Now, yeah. there are a million shows and it's you never know what's going to break through. So, Erica, let's start with you. And like, let's talk about let's talk about that hustle. Let's talk about that yeah. mid-level hustle. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, I will say I do think I, I came up fairly traditionally, except that. I started as a playwright. So I was in New York making theater, making plays, which I mm -hmm. think was such great, uh, honestly great preparation for the level I'm at now, like the production side of things where you have to care about every level of everything. And I think I learned that making theater <laughs> much more than I did in the, you know, like moving up the ladder in a writer's room. So um, I was writing plays. I realized I wanted to um, have an actual uh, career centered around writing and not be, you know, like working a day job and, and trying to make theater. And I love TV. Uh, so I wrote a pilot, but I, I believe my first couple staffing jobs were off of, I got off of plays. Um, I had a pilot as a sample, but my agents tended to like to send out plays more. I think it kind of when a showrunner is willing to write, mm. read a play, I think it, it sets you apart. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, and I, I, I sold a pilot before I got staffed. Like getting that first first staffing job took a minute, um, and I, I did a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, I would say I had like one season of like doing quite a few showrunner readings and not landing anything, and then my second season going out, um, I got. Channel Zero, uh, which was, I didn't mm -hmm. at the time, because it was my first job, I didn't know how insanely cool that job was. You know, like uh, Nick Antosco was the showrunner <laughs> on that. That and makes he's, sense. So yeah. he's just, um, he's incredible. You know, he's such a great showrunner. He's such a, a a role model, like a role model for me. That sounds weird. I don't know. Uh, I love him. Um, but so... <laughs> I, I think I think like once I got that first staffing job, honestly, I think the thing that people say might not be as true anymore, but for me was true that the first one is the hardest. And then I've really been working very mm -hmm. solidly ever since. Um, and it's but that hustle is definitely still there. You know, it's I think you forget about all the meetings you take. Yeah. that don't lead to anything because you just I don't know I remember the ones that I'm like oh yeah and then I got that yeah. job but like it's a lot of you know a lot of <clears throat> those exec meetings and not really know what you're doing I didn't always like know what I was doing in them you know they were fun and then I was like oh okay I did that and I know what they're looking for and Ugh. um but right yeah did, I did I it mean, ever start to click for you that about what Honestly, what those meetings were for you know in in a way like I feel like it helped a little I thought that it was going to help with staffing you know so they would tell me what pilots they had and I would read those and mm -hmm. then I would get the showrunner meetings and I feel like those were almost never the jobs I ended up getting you know I think it's I ended up getting the jobs where yeah. a showrunner had like read my stuff not through the network or 
I don't know. It's all, it's, it's still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, although I guess once you're in with a, a network, like then they pass you along. But I think when it clicked for me, it was when I yeah, got it becomes the a job little on, easier, yeah. Yes. Yes. I think what it clicked for me was when I got the job on one of us is lying that I was, you know, they sent me the book because an exec I had met with like a couple years prior liked my writing, you know, and was like, Oh, I remember Erica. I think she would be yeah. really good for this. Um, and I just, I'm still sort of like, Oh, wow. Right. Like all of those meetings that you, that might not feel like they did anything in the moment might come back. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's a great I don't know if that way to think of it. Answers the yeah, like the mid career hustle question, but um, we'll have you both back in a normal situation at some point. Um, but I'm going to end this as I always do. This is a truncated uh, writers panel episode. <laughs> uh, we've been. Um, this is for the listener, Jordan. This can stay in. We've been fraught with technical difficulties. Uh, we're recording this on Halloween. I'm sure it's unrelated. Um, I ate a ton of candy before we all got on. Is that normal? I've yeah. never had candy before. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm also in Sedona on like an energy vortex, they say. It might be all my fault. This might be, you know, That's I'm true. in the middle of a canyon. I'm sorry. I've done nothing wrong except everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are you have a possessed animal there. Like, listen, this has been We been started a this time. with me peeing on Mike. So, <laughs> you know what? You can keep that in, guys. I do want to say we... This has bonded us forever. Um, yeah. I look forward to seeing both of you in person. I am actually going to ask what you are watching on television these days because I feel like I can't end an episode unless I ask that. And then we'll all be trapped on this for the rest of our lives. So, um, Julian, while we still have your audio clear, yeah. what are you watching on television? Uh, yeah, so I am I'm very slow. I, I'm always catching up on things that I've heard about months ago. Um, so I started watching um, uh, Love Island, the UK version, <laughs> um, months and months ago, and then I fell off. So I'm catching up right now. I'm sure. really rooting for Davide um, and Ekansu. And then um, I'm also finishing up The Bear, which I'm obsessed with. I think that's one of those like really emotionally real shows that is doing some of the best work on television. Yeah. And then I just started Reboot, which I'm really enjoying. Great. It's so fun. Good to know. It's so good. Have you, you've watched it, Tim? Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, I have to. I, we watched the pilot, and I have to jump back in. Uh, I've been distracted with baseball and stuff. Erica, what else are you watching? Um, I've also been a bit distracted with baseball and a lot of them. Um, it's a fun, a fun season to be a Buffalo Bills fan. So I've been watching a lot of Bills football. Um, but uh, but what might be relevant to this podcast? Uh, I am loving this season of The Good Fight, um, and I know I already sort of raved about it earlier in the podcast, but. I, I think it's an underappreciated, underwatched show. And I it just deals with the moment we're living in in the most like gutsy, uh, smart, surprising way. Um, and I think it's really one of the best things on TV right now. Um, and then since I already talked about that, I'll also say I, I just finished Bad Sisters on Apple, um, which was an absolute blast. I love everything Sharon Horgan does. And I think this one like really, yeah. really stands out. 
It's a great one. And I know like people are talking about it, but people are not talking about it enough. So (laughs) everyone talk about it. So we get more. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you both so much for chatting today. It was great to meet you. Let's do this again for real sometime. (laughs) This is take one. Yeah, exactly. And there's good stuff in here. (laughs) Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.